Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the book of Ephesians and for the mysteries that have been revealed in this book to us and the exhortation that is soon to follow and what we're soon to go study now. And I, I know, Father, that in our studies of the Word of God, it's so easy to, to get in, absorbed in all of the intellectual and challenge side of study where we get to see and hear things that are marvelous and uh, cause us to uh, reflect and solve mysteries and puzzles and all the rest. That's, uh, that's to be expected, Father. That's how we are to devote our time to the Word, to be uh, seriously considering the depths of it. But then, Father, eventually, sooner or later, if we are truly to honor you by our study, we are to turn from the study intellectually and we are to start to look inward, as you call us to do, and we start to, to consider what these things mean in our lives. That's always where you want us to go, Father, for you tell us that we are to be doers of the Word and that this is the purpose of it in our life, to draw us nearer to Christ in all respects. And so that's where we have to begin to go in this study as Paul drives us there, Father. We ask that you would, um, don't, give us a, don't let us lose heart just because we've stopped talking about it abstractly and we've started to ask questions of ourselves by the leading of the Spirit. Don't let it cause us to shrink back, Father, to, um, to put aside what we're hearing. Rather, Father, I pray that you drive us deeper into it and into a con- concern about whether we are living up to the expectations you've set for us. For we love you. For you loved us first. And we want to please you, Father. For you gave everything for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have officially moved beyond the first half of this letter, so everybody can breathe a little easier now. We're not going to have to wade through so much deep doctrine, not quite as much. And so today, we turn the page, quite literally, chapter 4, and... In this second half of the letter now, we move into an emphasis, Paul moves into an emphasis on the corporate life of the body as it should be, given what we've learned in the theology of the first half of the letter. And if you remember when I introduced this letter at the beginning, I said that these two halves are working together in a very sensible way. Chapters 1 through 3 were doctrine, the truths of our faith. They would explain to us who God was, how we can know Him, how we can please Him, and they also explain who we are and why we need Him. And then I said the doctrines of our faith are the guide for living. They are the things that tell us what to do and why to do it. Because, friends, the ministry of the Word of God is not merely a ministry of sitting and listening to teaching. Ultimately, the ministry of the Word of God to the people of God is a ministry of helping us put into action what God has asked of us. So I think it's ironic, especially as a teacher that focuses on exposition of Scripture as my main ministry, I hear quite often from Christians that I assume are either misinformed or maybe just immature, who will sometimes say to me that they find Bible teaching, especially from the pulpit, not to be very relevant. And that seems to be the word that gets thrown out quite often, right? They want more practical, relevant teaching, they say. And they seek churches that advertise that form of teaching. We have practical teaching, as they would say. I think that's a little bit like a medical student saying, I don't want to sit for lectures on human anatomy or infectious diseases. I I need something more relevant, something more practical. Friends, if a doctor doesn't understand the basic sciences of their profession, then they're never going to move on to anything more practical because they are unable to do that. Likewise, if a Christian does not understand biblical doctrine, then he or she stands little chance, in my experience, of ever adopting the lifestyle of a disciple of actually truly doing what they talk about wanting to do. And if ever you find a pastor teaching, quote, practical advice from the pulpit, that will never replace doctrine. 
Because if that person were to call the audience, to call the congregation to think or to do certain things, to change certain things, the only question that's going to be in the minds of those under the pastor's authority is going to be the question of, do I like my pastor's advice? Do I want to do what my pastor is asking me to do? That's practical, so to speak, teaching. But when the preacher presents doctrinal truths from the Word of God, calling on the congregation to act according to what they've heard, then the question in the minds of the congregation is very different at that point. Then the question becomes, will I obey God? And that's a fundamentally different question, and a far more powerful one. And that's why Paul himself has spent three chapters, as we count them, wading through all of this important doctrine before he's going to begin giving the specific directions that he wants the church to adopt. Because now the question for them is not going to be, do we like what Paul's asking us to do? The question for them is, are we going to act in accordance with the truth of God's Word? And that's power. Proper Christian practice comes only from an understanding of Christian theology. Therefore, we now are moving into the practical portion of this letter, but you should expect that as we go through it, I'm going to refer back to the doctrines we've studied from time to time, for that's the underpinning, the justification for why what Paul says has to be done. So now we move to chapter 4, and I'll read verses 1 through 3. Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul's signaling here where he's moving. You can tell because he's got that opening word, therefore, again, right? We know we're about to see some application here. Obviously, when he says, therefore, he's referring back to the other three chapters, all the doctrine again. And let me try to summarize that. It's always risky to summarize three chapters of Scripture, but let me see if I can do that in a sentence. Here's what I think he's saying. Because God chose you to be an adopted child, to receive mercy by faith, and because you have His Spirit and an inheritance and a glorious future, dot, 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 For all those reasons, walk in a manner worthy of that calling. He uses the euphemism walk to describe our testimony of life in Christ, our following of Christ. In fact, the word walk is a mile marker of sorts for Paul in this letter. In the second half of the letter, he's going to use it six times. And those six occurrences are important moments. They're they're moments when he wants to emphasize obedience. And here's the first of those. As I was studying this myself, I found myself running past this quickly, and then I stopped. And I came back, because I think in our culture, this euphemism, though we're very familiar with it, the walk of our faith, the walking with Christ, this idea of walk as a euphemism is very familiar. But we as a culture, I think, are so unaccustomed to walking anywhere that you sometimes fail to grasp the depth of the picture that Paul is trying to paint with that word. So forgive me for a minute if we spend a few extra moments on walking. When I travel to teach and I go around the world, I'm usually working with a local team of supporters in whatever country I visit. You know, I enjoy that. That's a fun part of the job. You meet new people, see cultures, eat the food, experience the lifestyles, and so on. And in many of these places, the cultures that I'm visiting are accustomed to walking a lot more than we do in America, a lot more than I do. I remember on several occasions when I would be visiting with my hosts, I would be preparing to leave. I'd spend time with them or maybe sleep at their house instead of a hotel. And it's time to go to the church and teach. So I've got my stuff. I'm ready to go. We walk out the door. And I can remember in, in one particular example in Norway, 
And I walk out of their house to get into their car, and I look up, and I'm the only one standing by the car. And I'm kind of wondering, what happened? Where did everybody go? Because it's a family, they're all with me. And everyone else has started walking down the road. And the church is about a half mile away. And so naturally I'm thinking, well, that's too far, we've got to drive. And they're thinking, oh, it's only half a mile away, it's too close to drive. So they're walking, right? This happened to me, as I said, in Norway, and the temperatures at the time were in the 20s. And it was snowing lightly and all that. You know? And so as they begin to walk, I remember politely suggesting to them as they're, as they're leaving, I said, you know, shouldn't we be driving since the weather's bad? And they replied, there's no such thing as bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. So in my inappropriate clothing, I started walking. So my point is, as you can tell, that in modern cultures, except Norway, we're in danger, we're in danger of losing an appreciation for this euphemism, to walk with Christ. And I don't want to beat a dead horse, but as I thought more about it, it came to, to me anyway to be a far more meaningful study as I understood what the Bible really means when it talks about walk. Because even if you're the kind of person to engage in recreational walking, like around the neighborhood and so on, that still cannot give you a proper appreciation for what Paul was thinking when he uses this analogy, or what his readers were probably thinking. To walk in Paul's day involved a journey. You had to start somewhere that you wanted to leave, and you were headed to a destination that you wanted to reach. And that journey, generally speaking, required three things out of the traveler. First, you had to have energy. In Paul's day, a person would walk sometimes as far as 20 or 30 miles in a day. Just going from Jerusalem, for example, to the Galilee, which, if you read the Gospels, this is a common trip. You see them doing it all the time. That is a three-day walk, generally, each day about 25 miles. That would be like me walking to San Antonio right now. Like people say, do you run? And the answer is, well, only if I'm being chased. Do you walk to San Antonio? Only if I have no other option, right? But that's the way they had to move about. So to travel long distances, or any real distance, required you have a significant amount of energy. But the energy was parsed out in small bits. Each step was not a significant expenditure of energy. But collectively, it added up. So secondly, walking required persistence. You know, there would be times when it was downhill or when the scenery was uplifting or when you had someone with you and the conversation made time go faster. But then there were also going to be times when you're walking uphill or into the rain or against the wind or you might face threats or, or periods of boring silence with this unending sound of your feet just pounding on the dirt. There was any number of those experiences to be expected along walk. But no matter what you found at any given moment or on any given day, you knew you weren't going to reach your destination unless you kept going. Stopping halfway made things worse because you weren't where you started and you aren't where you wanted to go. So now what? So you had to have persistence in a walk. It was understood. You just took on that attitude from the start. And then finally, the third thing you really needed to journey on foot, you had to have a sense of direction. It's very easy to get lost walking in open territory. Anybody ever gone out in the woods and there's no path and all of a sudden you don't know which way you've been going for the last 10 minutes, right? Unless you follow a path or unless you have a guide, you're not going to know where you're going. You're going to walk in circles. So all of those details relate to the euphemism that Paul is using here in the second half of the letter to reflect on what it means to put into action everything you just learned. He's asking us to set our minds on a journey of sorts, a journey of living a life as a disciple of Christ. Our faith has put us in the journey, in the walk, so to speak. Our starting point is the place where God found us, that is, whether we were a child or whether we were a teen or whether we came to faith as an adult. doesn't really matter, but you all start somewhere. 
But friends, you've got to want to leave that place to the state of heart, to the nature of how you live, to the choices you make, to the way you, you operate in spiritual terms. That cannot be a place you enjoy or want to preserve or feel comfortable with because you're never going to take any journey away from it if that's the case. You have to see yourself honestly. I, I'm a person of sin as I came to know the Lord. And we still are, we know, but we want to see these things changing. I come into the faith I have with ungodliness, with brokenness, with hopelessness, and those things are not a place I want to spend any time So by faith in Christ, having been adopted into a new family, I'm part of a family that has a glorious future and has eternal blessings awaiting me. And more importantly, like the family of Norwegians I mentioned earlier, I have set my mind on following Christ, so I'm going to head out for a long walk. That's the attitude you're supposed to bring to your life with Christ. It's a journey. And, I should add, you can't take a shortcut. There's no car, there's no train. So you just start. You put one foot in front of the other. You just start making the walk. You dedicate some energy. You commit to it in perseverance. But you go under direction. The energy for your spiritual walk is the food that you get from the Word of God that is brought to us by the Spirit of God. And He is also our guide who pulls us away from distractions and sets us on the right path. And our persistence comes as well through His encouragement. Sometimes, friends, that journey is going to be a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. He puts the wind to our face. He brings us threats and tests along the way. And then there's times when he's going to blow the wind behind us and he's going to make everything an easier day. There's going to be an ebb and flow to the way this goes. He guides us the whole way through. And that's what Paul's talking about. I think it's to the benefit of us as students to understand the depths of what he means when he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In a general sense, what he's asking us to do is set our minds on leaving the world behind and seeking the destination of obeying Christ in all respects. He's urging us to bring our resources to that task, our time, talent, and treasure, that you've heard me say that in the past. He's asking us to be persistent, and he's asking us to walk in the counsel of the Spirit so we don't get lost or wander off the path, we stay on track. Now, I hope that little bit of background gives you something to think about as we start talking in terms of actions within the Christian life. A lot of us begin this journey, this walk of our life with Christ with some degree of enthusiasm. I think that's especially true as an adult. You know, kids come to faith, I'm not sure they really grasp it all. They don't have to. That's the beauty of it. But certainly as an adult, when you come to faith, there's usually some burst of enthusiasm. We're eager. We want to go do this new Christian thing. We want to please Christ. And I think it's because we imagine that there's some glorious trip ahead of us filled with excitement and filled with reward, sort of like the time when a family starts a long road trip. Day one is always the best day, isn't it? But then things don't go as planned sometimes. We had the station wagon thing when I was growing up. We used to take the trips to California. We lived in El Paso. In some ways it's bad because it's El Paso, but in some ways it was good because anywhere you go, you were somewhere better. So we would go west, California. we go east, you know, we end up in Florida. It was always good. So on day one, you're excited. Everyone jumps in the car. And then, you know, you, things like you get a flat or you face detours or the trip takes longer than you expect and fights break out in the back seat. The poodle gets motion sick. And next thing you know, you're wishing you could just get back home, forget the whole trip. There's this waning desire after a while. The problem in that situation is not the journey. The problem wasn't the journey. The problem was the perspective. You need to start a journey of any length with the right point of view. Your walk with Christ is not a day trip. It's not a casual afternoon. It's not even a two-week vacation on the road. It's a lifelong journey. 
And the road is not going to be paved and smooth the whole time. It's going to have potholes. You're going to have detours. It's a journey. But just like that person who sets out on a long walk, if you stop halfway in, you're worse than before you started. I think that's the essence of what Jesus means when he says to the one who starts building a tower and finishes halfway, forevermore this half-finished tower stands as a testimony against them. People will look at it and go, some idiot started this and couldn't finish it. Better never to have started. And faith is not something we start, it's something God starts. But the journey we're talking about is what we do with it. The walk that can be worthy of a calling. So Paul says in verse 2, if you're going to walk, if you're going to live as a disciple, he says, do it in a worthy manner, which begins with the right attitude about what we're starting. And Paul describes the attitude that must accompany the walk, the life of a disciple, with three virtues. That's what you see in the passage I read. Three virtues that mark or describe the proper starting attitude for someone who's trying to walk with Christ in a worthy manner. And the first of these is an attitude of humility. In Greek, humility literally means having a lowliness of mind. That's the way that word in Greek is literally translated. Paul is saying something similar to what he says in Romans 12 when early in that chapter he cautions the church not to think too highly of ourselves. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, he says in Romans 12.3. The idea is this. Just have a realistic appreciation for the difficulty of this journey because of the strength of your opposition and because of the weakness of your flesh. Just have a realistic appreciation for what's coming on. Like a road trip with the family. It's not bliss. Knowing that coming in, you get a little prepared for it. You make some plans. You, you talk to yourself. You say, I know it's not going to be easy the whole time, but we're prepared. That's a different attitude. It changes dramatically what you will do when the hard times come. Humility is a piece to that. It's a sober appreciation for the difficulties that lie ahead because of the inadequacies in ourself to deal with them apart from God. Secondly, Paul says we have to have an attitude of gentleness. And gentleness means having grace for others who face the same difficulties you do. So it's the natural complement to humility. Humility is having a sober appreciation for self. Gentleness is remembering everybody else is just like you. Humility is recognizing you're not just going to glide through this whole spiritual journey without some kind of challenge or misstep. And gentleness means understanding that the others are going to stumble from time to time also. We appreciate others' challenges even as we acknowledge our own. And that's why Paul says you've got to show tolerance for others in the body of Christ, in love. Tolerance for other people and how we're gentle with them. Because you know they're not perfect. So when they show imperfections within the body, let's all just react in agape love. That's what Paul's asking here. The word love here in, in Greek is agape. Agape love is not a noun, it's a verb. It's not the feeling, it's an action. And the action is one of self-sacrificial love. Doing something for other people. Taking on their needs above my own. That's love in an agape sense. So we don't judge, we don't condemn, we show tolerance. And while we're on the topic of tolerance, in this day and age, I feel some requirement now to spend a moment on this word tolerance. Many people in the world call for tolerance. Most of the time, though, the world uses that word very differently than the Bible does. The Bible, when it uses it here, for example, when Paul says show tolerance, he's asking us to show understanding for others in the body of Christ when they sin, when they make mistakes, be tolerant of that problem. We tolerate a mistake in the sense 
that we show patience to that person. We give opportunity for them to learn, to repent, to do better. We coach them. We train them. It's tolerance in the sense of not jumping down their neck every time they do something wrong. Not writing them off as if they have no hope in the body of Christ because they had a bad weekend. Give the process of sanctification some time. Of course, that's all predicated on the assumption they're working with you. They're trying. But under those circumstances, we show tolerance. Now, the world uses the word differently. The world uses tolerance in the sense that you accept their sin. They call for the world to tolerate, to accept various things. Sexual sins, for example, as the norm and legitimate. Or they call for us, Christians, to tolerate other religious viewpoints by agreeing with them that their viewpoints are equally valid. That's tolerating them. Tolerance means accepting anything, any viewpoint, any preference, any act, and silencing any opposition to it. Ironically, the modern view of tolerance is actually self-contradictory when you think about it. By the world's standard, any mutually exclusive point of view is inherently intolerant. Any point of view that says we have the only truth is inherently intolerant to the world's point of view. So if you hold a view that by its claims eliminates any other view then that view must be rejected because it holds to an absolute view. That's the irony and and the self-contradictory nature. So, for example, if you believe only one kind of marriage is true marriage, well, then you are being intolerant because you have excluded anything else. Or if you believe there's only one way to God, then you are intolerant and so on. So anything intolerant must be bad, the world would say. Can you see the enemy in this? you see the enemy working here? He's working in the minds of the unbelieving with his call to, quote, tolerance as they define it, because through that means he insulates them from any mutually exclusive claim concerning Christ, because he predisposes them against absolute truth on any scale. If something can be absolutely true and everything else can be wrong, it's intolerant, I can't accept it. It's an insulation against the gospel. We have to be careful as Christians not to bring the enemy's definition of tolerance into our theology as we think of the word. We will tolerate mistakes among us just as Christ tolerates them with us. But that means we tolerate it the same way he does. We do not declare evil to be good simply for the sake of fellowship. We know that's not a loving thing to do. Nor do we tell someone that it is acceptable that they continue in what is wrong. We love them into something better by acknowledging that sin needs to change. Paul's talking of that kind of tolerance. So while we are worried about how the world is misusing that word, don't go too far the other direction, too. We might become so dogmatic about doing what's right that we leave no room for error, no possibility that someone needs to grow into this life of perfection that we all seek and never achieve. And now we become literally and ironically intolerant within our own body for anyone to be normal, to be someone who's striving but not perfect. And then Paul adds, thirdly, patience. So humility, gentleness, patience. And patience was an absolutely essential requirement for long journeys. We've said this already. In fact, it's been my experience that impatient people, they don't even start long journeys, much less finish them. Because they know they don't have it in them. Our walk with Christ, friends, may last three, four, five decades, maybe more for some of us before we see him face to face. If you don't bring an attitude of patience to that walk, then you will burn out. You will burn out. And that's unfortunately what I think happens a lot in the church. We rah-rah them up. We get them excited. We tell them all these wonderful things about what it will be to be a Christian. 
And if we're not careful, we persuade them into a lifestyle, not into a relationship. And then if something falls apart and life doesn't go perfectly like they thought, well then, forget this whole thing. After all, it was all just nonsense. If you ever watched a Christian begin their walk with that burst of energy and then quickly flame out, you've almost certainly seen someone beginning with the wrong attitude, if not the wrong belief altogether. Now, I don't want you thinking this is going to be some kind of unpleasant experience either. Excitement and anticipation is good, but it has to be accompanied by patience. right? Perhaps no one ever sat that Christian down and explained to them that their walk with Christ isn't going to be a sprint. It's going to be a marathon, and they need to be prepared for that daily exercise of their faith. They have to start with humility, thinking correctly about themselves. They've got to start with gentleness, showing consideration for others who are doing the same thing. And then they have to add to that a patience that appreciates this is a lifelong process, and the goal is to see where I end, not to see where I am tomorrow speaking as a pastor and on behalf of the elders as well, that we need your tolerance, we need your love, we need your patience, because we are all in the same walk with you. We may be a step further along the journey than you are, perhaps, maybe we're a step behind, but we're all walking as the same family with that sin and that weakness that you know as well, and we're all trying to get there with you, and we all have the same heart to do it, we all have the same goal. But we're all going to stumble, too. We're all going to have our bad days. And if you don't recognize the likelihood, the potential, that those who lead you are going to have those weaknesses just like you, that when you find them, and you inevitably will, it'll be shocking. And you might question whether this person has anything to offer you. That's the kind of of subtle misconceptions that can creep into our relationships within the body. And it starts at the leadership, and then it might go to other people, too. That godly man or woman you thought was always your idol, and then you find out that sometimes they aren't so perfect. Well, that's just realism. That's just natural. But it doesn't excuse it. That's the last piece in this. Neither will I nor the elders ever ask you to excuse our sin, much less to approve it. But we want you to tolerate it. That is to say, with patience, understand that we're in a process. Help us go there. Don't judge us in a moment over one bad word or one bad day, even as you pray for us to do better. That's the expectation for everyone in the body. I'm not limiting it to leaders, but don't forget your leaders in that respect. That leads us to the next part of chapter 4, Ephesians 4, 4. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's a doxology of sorts concerning the unity of the body. And Paul is using this as a support for his argument to walk in a manner that is worthy. He is arguing here for the church to act in unity concerning these things, being patient, being tolerant, being kind to one another, be in unity about all of this stuff, he says, because you are already united spiritually. I love this analogy or this argument he's making. He's basically saying, you are already united in all the important things, so don't act divided in the meaningless things. It would be like telling two siblings to treat each other in brotherly love. I always wondered what brotherly love was when I was growing up. For the longest time, I thought brotherly love was intended ironically. My relationship with my brothers, I had two brothers growing up. I was the oldest. But it was anything but loving. And I take my full blame in that, too. It wasn't just them. None of us were believers, and that probably contributed a lot to it. But in Paul's case, he's not talking in an ironic sense, of course. He's saying that the body of Christ is united, and it's united in important ways and eternal ways. And so then he concludes from that, so let's all act like it. And to illustrate it, he uses seven things here, seven ways 
in which we are already united, even when we're fighting with one another, if we ever do. And these seven aspects of unity, they're all spiritual. They're all markers that identify us as part of the same family and destined for the same future. And therefore, they argue strongly that we should live and think in ways that reflect the fact that we are already united. And so let's just take a brief look at these seven. First, there's one body, Paul says. The body here refers to this group. But not just this group. The universal church worldwide. Every person on earth who has been born again by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ is a member of one church, one body. Another irony of history, the word Catholic, small c, just means universal. That's the definition of the word. So technically, we are all part of the Catholic Church, though not the Roman Catholic Church. We're part of the one universal church, one body. And Paul's point is that there are not separate bodies in this relationship with Christ. In human terms, we break up the body of Christ in a lot of different ways, and sometimes for good reason. We have different denominations, uh, theological views, different affiliations. We even have just multiple campuses or multiple sites sometimes. Right? Those are all ways in which we divide, some of them regrettable. But those things don't change the fact that we are all one institution spiritually. And therefore, no one can come along and claim to have rediscovered the true church which is what Mormonism would claim. Or no one can claim that they have some unique style of worship or teaching or location or whatever, and that uniqueness, oh, that's the thing that defines them to be true and everyone else is false. That makes no sense because there is only one church and it's not defined by those things. The body of Christ transcends superficial differences. A true confession in the name above all names is the one and only requirement to become a part of the body of Christ. And no one has a monopoly on the name of Christ, much less on his body. And secondly, Paul says, that one body is held together by the indwelling of the one and only Spirit of God. That's his second item, the Spirit of God. Paul says in Romans 8.16 that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So your membership card for being a part of the church, the body of Christ, is the Holy Spirit. He's your membership card. Now, we don't check your ID as you enter the building because we really don't have a scanner that can pick him up. Not accurately. But Paul says the Lord does have such a scanner, so to speak. He can check your ID card. And at the pearly gates, it absolutely gets checked. And I've completely mishmashed a whole bunch of theology there, and it's not accurate. But in Acts 8, though, you can see an example of this at work, where somebody is participating in a group but does not have their membership card. In Acts 8, it's the story of when Simon... Uh, the magician, was in Samaria and Philip is there evangelizing and after Philip converts a bunch of Samaritans, then John and Peter come down from Jerusalem to sort of check up on Philip and make sure that what they've heard is actually happening. Samaritans are believing. And in Acts 8.18, we get to the point where another man who's in Samaria, a magician named Simon, has caught wind of this new movement, finds it quite exciting and quite interesting, especially when he sees people manifesting the Holy Spirit after they believe. And so he says this, verse 18. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the apostles money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. In Greek, it literally means go to hell with your silver. And I think he meant it literally. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. So Simon was an unbeliever who was seeking to enjoy the power and the recognition that came 
upon the apostles by the way they could bestow the gift of the Holy Spirit. But as Peter observed, this man's heart was not right with God because he lacked the Holy Spirit. So he had attached himself to the body of Christ, but he was not part of that body because he didn't have the ID card, as I call it. He did not have the Holy Spirit. So Paul says there is one spirit that testifies that you are in the one body. Third, Paul says we all have one hope. That is, we all have a common hope. We have the same hope concerning our future, and that hope, to be specific, is the hope of our resurrection into a new body for eternal life with the Lord. That's our hope. Our common eternal hope. That is probably the most powerful, unifying aspect or principle of Christianity. In the sense of practically speaking, how do I become unified with a group of people? I mean, look around this room. You guys all have different socioeconomic backgrounds. Some of you came from rich families, some came from poor. You all have different dreams about your future. You want different things in life. You live differently. Your family life is different. Despite all of those differences, we come here at least once a week, if not more often, and we suddenly feel like we're all part of the same group. Why? Well, all of these things apply. The oneness of all of these things is a part of it. But one of the biggest ones is we all have the same future. We're all talking about the same return of Christ for the same kingdom opportunity. We all know where we're headed. It's like a lot of things in life. When you all get together in business or you get together in social settings, when everyone has a common purpose for where they're going, that's the unifying principle that makes everybody who is different suddenly one. The military does this really, really well. A mission that unifies a bunch of strangers. Because they all have the same destination. That's what we have. What other group can say that, by the way? What other group can say they know for certain their eternal future following death and it's shared? One day, you and I will be living in eternal bodies in the kingdom serving Christ. And I fully expect that some point during that thousand years, you and I are going to run into each other. It just seems the odds are we're going to bump into each other. And when we do that, here's my prediction. Remember this. We're going to probably be laughing at ourselves first, at all our foolishness, our meaningless disagreements, all these things we thought were so important that we realize now we should have just left aside. And we're going to be marveling together at our shared blessings in Christ. You know what? We could skip the first part and just jump to that second part right now if you wanted to. We could just forget all of the foolishness and just jump right to the shared future and start thinking. I mean, we don't have to go through all the trouble first if we don't want to. That's his point. The fourth and fifth ones we can serve up together here. He's, he says, one Lord, one faith. And those points should be self-explanatory, right? There's one Lord, one saving God. Peter himself declared in Acts 4.12, he said, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Speaking of Jesus Christ, obviously. Here again, by the way, the world would call us intolerant for our unwillingness to accept that there may be other ways to heaven as they would expect. But friends, holding to the truth is not intolerance. It's actually love because our message is the only one that saves. So to deny that is an unloving response to the world. And likewise, we've entered into the family of God by one faith, which means we have the same confession. The only way to salvation is by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So as Paul says in Romans 10:9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's our one faith. So faith in a specific church does not save you. Faith in a good work does not save you. Faith in your own goodness or worthiness will not save you. The word faith requires an object. It requires something you put your, your faith into. And if you don't put your faith into the right thing, you will be disappointed. Just as Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.6, 
For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Christ is our cornerstone. So we are united by a shared faith in the one and only Savior, which I should add, by the way, means that no matter what disagreements or what kinds of of disputes might arise to divide us within the body of Christ, we have a common faith that unites us to a common future. And if we look past the interim, we can see into the future in a way that we'll one day know in fact. And then just lastly, sixth and seventh, we have, he says, sixth, one baptism. And I want to be clear on what he means. Paul's speaking about the spiritual baptism that comes by the arrival of the Holy Spirit into our hearts to indwell us as a consequence of faith or as a means of faith. In fact, it's inseparable from the moment of faith. That is a common experience that unites all believers. That common experience that Jesus refers to in John 3 as being born again. That's what it means. It's like all of us had the same spiritual womb. We were all birthed in the same process. Just to clarify, Paul is not talking about water baptism. And that's an interesting distinction, because if you thought he was talking about water baptism, well, clearly not all believers experience the same water baptism. In fact, not all believers experience water baptism. The thief on the cross did not experience water baptism. So if you start to think he's speaking strictly in physical terms of water, you could quickly make an argument that, no, 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 wait a minute. Some people are sprinkled. Some people are dunked. Some people never get it. There's at least three right there. We're not all the same. Well, of course, the water is just a picture of the spiritual, and the spiritual is the one that matters. That's what this whole list is, spiritual. So, although I believe certainly that Scripture teaches a certain kind of water baptism, immersion, I cannot say that my brothers and sisters in Christ who were not baptized in that way, or for whatever reason were never baptized, I can't say that they aren't part of one body. I can't say they don't have the same future. We all share the same future because of the spirit baptism. Finally, we are all children of the same God and Father. You know, I mentioned my brothers a little earlier. Well, recently my father has been enduring some health issues. Some of you guys know this. It's been going on for a while. But recently he's had to be put into a home where they can care for him in a greater way. And that's required a lot of attention from my siblings and I as we manage this process with my mom and try to make it come together. And it's interesting. My father's situation in a way has reminded my brothers and I that we are part of the same family and that we are there because of the same father. That's how it should be. And that's how it is in the family of God. We have the same Father, God the Father. So no matter what differences mark your earthly life, no matter how much disappointment or disregard or annoyance one of us might be to another from time to time, it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. It's a temporary thing. Because as the saying goes, blood is thicker than water. We're all children of the same God and Father who has called us into his family. None of us had reason to expect that. None of us had anything coming to us. God did it by measure of his grace alone. It was for his sake that we were brought in so that we can glorify him. I mean, we all came in in the same way. So let's just act like we're on the same journey together, as we do so often here. And I appreciate that. Let's continue and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you have brought together such a different group of people, Father. Peculiar people, you call us at times. And we embrace that, Father. We embrace it because it's a sign of your wisdom and your power, your ability to unite the, un, the, the divided, the, the ones who would never otherwise be together. And we thank you, Father, for the one spirit that has united us by our one faith in the one Lord who has saved us, making us children of the one Father. This unity, unity Father, is the means by which we can, we can show patience and tolerance to one another as we make mistakes and we can be humble about ourselves when we know it was all someone else 
someone else's work, Christ's work that brought us in. And I do pray for this church, Father. I pray for us to have a heart that wants to serve and see others brought to faith, as we heard earlier in our mission time. It's a church that wants to be involved in that work personally. It's a church that wants to represent you well in our individual walk. It's a church, Father, that wants to please you. I pray for these things. And for our leaders, both formal and informal, who are working to help others along that same path. We pray for this in Jesus' name.